Okay, uh, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Today is July 8, 2020. And uh, today, uh, continuing discussion of uh, Sutta Nipata, this is the second portion of the reading and commentary on the third chapter sutta called Sundarika Bharadvaja, if you remember. Uh, there was a wealthy, important political um, uh, leading clan of Kosala called the Bharadvajas, and Sundarika is the name of a river where one of the brothers of that clan had the habit of uh, doing some ritual, and then he one day did his ritual and saw Gautama sitting under a tree with his head covered, this sutta, and then he asked, um, he wanted to make offerings to Gautama, because he was a very uh, pure-hearted guy, it seems. And um, last time we uh, went through the sutta and began to, I began to read commentary or do commentary. It's a very um, deep and philosophical sutta, and it goes uh, very far if we look into commentaries. Uh, this was Gautama. This was one of Gautama's um, uh, multiple contacts with Brahmins who um, were of the uh, ideology of the day, who were leading exponents in the community uh, at the top level caste, uh, with a, a spiritual philosophy that Gautama found quite. Um, distorted or deficient in different ways. And the basis is, uh, we'll call him Sundarika, coming to Gautama, wishing uh, to make a sacrifice. Uh, his first question, though, was, what's your caste? And Gautama begins by explaining that he's not of any particular caste, uh, having nothing, I wander my mean, by means of wisdom in the world. And you ask me an inappropriate question about clan, <laughs> meaning you are wishing to know if I'm worthy of receiving the food um, from your ritual as sacrifice and offering, uh, so you may gain something from it. And you're... Uh, thinking in the wrong way, uh, Sundarika, it seems he's saying. Uh, don't, uh, clan and caste is not important, but the development of mind and being, the spiritual attainment, the qualities of uh, ethical behavior, morality, and then attainment, spiritual realization attainment, that's what's really important, not uh, a person's birth caste, and if you wish your sacrifice to be successful, because that we keep going back to that, he's saying, you know, what, how can I make a successful uh, sacrifice? Um, uh, what you need is to give it to someone who deserves it by their efforts and successful uh, transformation and attainment. And um, Sundarika continues to go back to 
oh yes, <laughs> my sacrifice, our sacrifice will succeed, for we have seen, meaning now I have seen an attainer of knowledge like you. It's not from seeing those like you that someone else eats the sacrificial case. Meaning, um, you deserve it, okay, I got that, even if you're not a Brahmin. And then, um, Gautama is redirecting him uh, to learn about um, the quality, what the, the type of person or yogi or being that rightly deserves a sacrifice like that, uh, where a sacrifice succeeds. Uh, so it's a minor kind of matter, you know, uh, a reformulation of the Brahmin philosophy of achieving a successful sacrifice. Uh, Gautama just happens to explain the whole, in many, I would say, the whole of his teaching, um, not in the structured way of going through lists like uh, the three poisons, which is actually a Mahayana term for uh, grasping aversion, ignorance, or what's called in Theravadan, three unwholesome roots, uh, uh, the kleshas. And we're going to look into kleshas and asrava or effluence, various types and tendencies in mind that need to be purified on the path. Uh, while um, the Hindu approach, um, or the Brahmin approach, seems to be uh, correct performance of ritual uh, that they believed would bring them some kind of greater knowledge or power or merit or higher achievement. Uh, Gautama is, is going out with the whole, presenting to him the whole of what he has attained and what could be, uh, what he has attained framed as uh, the one that's worthy of such sacrifice. And so all of his comments really uh, are reflective of what he has attained, how he sees um, phenomena or existence, his achievement and attainment in a release and awareness. Uh, and that's a whole lot more than even offering a, a correct sacrifice, a, cor a successful sacrifice. So, for, uh, and as I said, um, Sundaraka could be seen as a big fish in the community, even though he was not a, um, <laughs> an arrogant fellow seeking to dominate anyone. Um, the basis, his family, and the community around them, the Brahmin orthodoxy and, and the political power behind him, uh, was also being addressed by Gautama here, it seems to me. And so... His, Gautama's first comment is, um, don't inquire about birth, inquire about conduct. And it doesn't matter what kind of wood is burned, it's the fire that counts. And we ended last time in the paragraph where the beginning is Gautama's reply saying, one tamed by truth, endowed with self-control, <clears throat> attained to the end of knowledge. It's, he's come to the end of knowing, having fulfilled the holy life, to him, at the right time, you should bestow an offering. And <clears throat> footnote 8, at the bottom of the page, indicates that in this other sutta, 
which was uh, Sutta Nipata 7.9, uh, the initial exchange ended at that point. The sacrificial cake is offered. Gautama refuses it, just as he did in Samutta Nikaya 1.4, which is uh, the talk to the plowman Bharadvaja or Kasi Bharadvaja. Maybe the same, the same clan, actually. Very reasonable, same last name. Where... Um, the plowman threw away the offering, it sizzled in the water, and then uh, this is the same kind of story. Whether that's true or not, who can say? But there were five more verses of Dhamma here in point eight on the basic readout of the sutta from Dhamma Talks, which I think is just nice to read, and then I'll go back to the translation of this uh, Sutta Nipata um, contact or dialogue. So Gautama said, Don't, Brahman, when lighting kindling, imagine that purity comes from that outside, for the skilled say that purity doesn't come through that. Whoever searches outside for purity, meaning whoever searches outside for purity, meaning by performance of ritual, by wearing a robe, by diet, meaning vegetarianism, uh, searches outside for purity, the skilled, the wise, would know that purity doesn't come through that. <clears throat> Going on, having abandoned the lighting of kindling, meaning he's no longer burning with uh, restlessness or craving or clinging, I, Brahman, ignite just the inner fire, meaning <laughs> the, 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 the power uh, at, at the inner levels of what he is, not associated with body uh, or social position at all. <clears throat> constantly a fire, constantly centered in mind, I am a worthy one living the holy life. Conceit, Brahman, is the burden on your shoulder. Anger, your smoke. False speech, your ashes. The tongue is the ladle. The heart, the fire altar. The well-tamed self is the fire of a man. <clears throat> And so there are other places where Gautama said the fire's gone out. And so here he's, you can just see that, that you can, some people will say, ah, oh, it's contradictory, he's a bad teacher, drop it, run away. And another person will say, well, the way it looks to me, uh, <clears throat> one teacher uses contradictory images or metaphors or similes, uh, teaching uh, similar points to different people. And so there's the teaching of no mind, there's the teaching that Buddha is mind. <laughs> There's the teaching of no self. There's the teaching of self-realization. And so uh, <laughs> one needs to be very nimble and, and, um, and rely on yourself without, um, <clears throat> without being fooled by your mind. <laughs> Relying on discernment without being fooled by your own mind. Certainly not being fooled by others' um, mistaken understanding. And everybody has their own degree of understanding anything. And so, at one level, we can say, I can say that everything everyone says is true for them, from their level, from their experience, from their perception. Even the liar is, is telling the truth. And there's a Taoist saying something like, one only, one, only, um, one, one only makes liars by not believing in people. Something like that. Where, uh, if you see there the truth in their expression, which happens to be a lie, you may not necessarily call them a liar, or it seems to me, yeah, sure, you can say he's a liar. 
but you can also see where they're coming from, and that's understanding. And so Gautama here is, says, uh, I'm constantly a fire. So he's constantly burning? Yeah, but it's not burning with craving and clinging and, and the three unwholesome roots or three poisons, uh, greed or desire and anger, aversion and ignorance, confusion. He's not burning that way. And so <laughs> once he's, first he says, I'm the worthy one living the holy life. The next thing he says is that you're conceited, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's pretty ballsy, actually. Uh, or you can say he's a hypocrite. Where's the proof? No proof. And so, again, uh, you got, we have to figure these things out ourselves. And so we can know the truth for ourselves, uh, but I don't think we can make anyone else see what we see. So after he says, uh, constantly a fire, constantly centered in mind, uh, centered in mind doesn't mean thinking. <clears throat> it really means mindful, I think. Uh, then he says, I'm a worthy one living a holy life. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, if one is free of uh, identity and memory or conceit, can he say such? Uh, I guess it's fine to say it. Then the next thing he says is that conceit, Brahman, is the burden on your shoulder. That's interesting. Anger, your smoke. False speech, your ashes. Then uh, dot, dot, dot. The well-tamed self is the fire of a man. And so his constant burning is uh, his manifestation of self-taming. Is his work of what? Continuing self-taming? Or his achievement of being been self-tamed, having achieved self-tame, self-taming. Going on, the Dhamma is a lake whose ford is virtue, meaning way of crossing over the lake is virtue, sila. Limpid, meaning clear, praised by the good to the good, where attainers of knowledge, having bathed, cross, dry-limbed to the further shore. So the ocean of birth and death, uh, the Dhamma is a lake from this side to the other, from our ignorance or distortion today to clarity and freedom released tomorrow. And that can be done, uh, I have no doubt, <laughs> by following uh, the Buddhist path. Um, unfortunately, there are many people who speak of it different ways. And so, and again, one needs to find one's own internal um, internal guidance to make good sense of outer teaching. Truth, Dhamma, restraint, the holy life, attainment of Brahma dependent on the middle, meaning, I would say, uh, neither too, ta too tight, too loose in conduct or activity, but also uh, neither affirmation nor negation and freedom from, from view, from wrong view particularly. Uh, this is the way. So pay homage to those who become truly straightened. That I call a man in the flow of the Dhamma. And so here he is at the Sundaraka River. So using analogies of lake and river and the flow of the Dhamma. And the constituents or the core principles are truth, Dhamma, meaning truth, a commitment to truth, and a deep knowing of this Buddha Dhamma teaching, self-restraint, the holy life, which is particularly of um, not of harmlessness, and then attainment of Brahma dependent on the middle. Uh, that's the way to become truly straightened. <laughs> so there's some <laughs> very interesting ways of thinking there. It goes on back to the Sutta Nipata, 
Sutta. And I made a point in the uh, Wikipedia, not Wikipedia, YouTube write-up in the text description that I was mistaken that when the comment, when the footnotes say SN something or S, capital S, small n, capital A, I thought that meant Sutta, uh, Samyutta Nikaya Atakata, but it's actually Sutta Nipata Atakata. Atakata, meaning it's a commentary from uh, it's Abhidhamma, I think it's uh, Buddha Gosha. So a lot of the flesh out, full of filling out of the footnotes comes from Abhidhamma commentary from uh, Buddha Gosha and others, and there's commentary on capital S, capital N, meaning Samutta Nikaya suttas. Then there's also commentary on Sutta Nipata suttas, which is capital S, small n, capital A. Okay? So, just to be accurate and honest, um, there's a whole set of commentaries on uh, the portions of uh, the the Pitaka, the Sutta Pitaka, uh, meaning the basket of suttas, including Sutta Nipata and uh, Samutta Nikaya. So it's all very complicated. Uh, There are lots and lots and lots of uh, Theravadan suttas. And um, there really are hidden gems throughout all of them, it seems. So he goes on. Those with well-restrained... So we're back to the main main reading of um, Sutta Nipata here. Those with well-restrained minds straight as a shuttle them to them. At the right time, you should bestow an offering. And so first he's talking about the types of people to whom you should make offering, and then he's uh, later will be talking about himself. So, well-restrained mind, straight as a shuttle, those devoid of passion, their faculties well-centered, released like the moon from the grasp of an eclipse. And uh, these, again, are um, goals and ideals. Uh, I don't know anybody personally that has is devoid of passion and fully centered but uh, we can you know the value of uh, teaching teachings of the path up the mountain or teachings that indicate some of the goals of the path up the mountain uh, is so that you know we keep our eyes on the prize <laughs> so that we don't forget where we're going and continue to reorient ourselves as we walk freely in our own way according to free will, or what we experience as free will, uh, towards greater development, which is the summit of the mountain, which um, uh, a, a vision of which is provided very well by Gautama. He goes on, um, Unattached, they wander in the world, always mindful, abandoning possessiveness. And again, to them, at the right time, you should bestow an offering. And then he begins to explain his own attainment or that the Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. And the rest of the teaching, uh, a, number of, uh, a number of paragraphs, half a dozen or more, uh, conclude always with the, the Tathagata, meaning the thus come one or such come one. That one truly deserves the sacrificial cake. Uh, and so now he's... Uh, Showing what what attain what what showing his attainment, presenting or describing his attainment, and what the goal looks like. So, who abandoning sensuality wanders victorious? Who knows the end of birth and death? 
totally unbound, cool as a pool of water. And so the difference between hot and cold, or he's not cold, but he's not hot, he's cool, uh, cooling down <laughs> as um, mm, increasing freedom from impulsivity, emotional, mental impulsivity, uh, being less triggerable. And again, a lot of that just happens naturally as detachment continues, meaning uh, abandoning sensuality, meaning abandoning grasping at um, dhammas of the world, <laughs> physical pleasure and physicality in general, luxury or even, uh, you know, there, there are people who go to the, uh, to the mall and they get super excited, oh my god, look at that, look at that, look at that. Uh, that's a bit feverish, and while they may be having a good time and having fun, um, with greater development comes a little less enthusiasm about material accumulation. Uh, and, you know, everybody can do whatever they want, but there is a path, and the path brings a higher, higher forms of, of happiness and pleasure and joy and wellness, well-being, uh, beyond attachment to continued accumulation. He goes on, consonant among the consonant, uh, far from the discordant, the Tathagata of infinite discernment, not smeared here or beyond, in this dimension or the next, not smeared um, by ignorance or craving or sensuality or what we'll say, the, the defilements and um, distorted uh, karmic biases. And that's the yasavas and kleshas, which we'll get into a little bit later. So infinite discernment. And towards the end of the sutta, there's some very high philosophy about what the Buddha knows in terms of seeing and, and comprehension, what, what that infinite discernment has revealed. He goes on, in whom no deceptiveness dwells, no conceit, like eighth fetter, devoid of greed, unpossessive, undesiring, his anger dispelled, his mind entirely unbound, a Brahmin who has abandoned the stain of grief. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Uh, no deceptiveness because there's no desire to get what could be, what would be uh, gained by deception. I mean, deception is, uh, comes in the, in, uh, along the train of desire. And grief comes uh, as the caboose of the train of desire as well. Grief. What is grief about? Grief is sorrow upon loss. Um, and again, um, you can see, you... Uh, making a diagnosis doesn't mean uh, is not behavioral condemnation. Meaning, uh, anyone who seeks a soulmate, <laughs> which is like all of us, uh, or all beings uh, through six density, seek uh, mind body spirit union to some degree, actually, whether they know it or not. And uh, that's a totally reasonable desire that's <laughs> uh, natural and uh, leads to grief. 
when there's separation with the beloved or any disharmony in the relationship. Does that mean that the Buddhist says you shouldn't do it? Some Buddhists would say so. Some Buddhists would say, um, I, I, don't, I don't consider myself a Buddhist exactly, but my sense is while we, you know, Ross said, um, uh, the proper role for the entity in third density is to experience all things desired. And then desires unneeded naturally fall away in time, which may be the time of uh, a dozen lifetimes. And with all sorts of uh, difficulty and misery uh, in, in experience throughout those lifetimes as well, or different portions of different lifetimes. Hmm. And then after all that, the certain desires will be uh, renounced naturally, or we're just lo no longer interested. Uh, but, but grief and deception are normally associated with desire. Now, one can um, have, a, have desire and um, abandon, abandon deception or avoid. And that's where we get to the four forms of right effort. It seems that there actually is uh, a difference between right effort in the Eightfold Noble Path, Sama Vayama, I believe, and then the four forms of right effort or four right effort exertions, which is uh, uh, Sama Padana. <laughs> Some people, I'm sure, like to criticize the my uh, inabilities in Dhamma, in Abhidhamma, but <clears throat> certainly uh, the forms of exertion and effort that are taught as Buddha Dhamma that can be understood in relation to the Eightfold Path factor called right effort include um, avoiding what is unwholesome or what will lead us into more pain for self and other also called an infringement of the love one. And then abandoning wherever we have found ourselves, whenever we find ourselves in distorted states of mind or unwholesome states of mind, uh, particularly the, the kleshas and the defilements, so-called, so associated with wrong speech and uh, anger and um, uh, getting stuck. And so you've got letting go or, or avoiding the harmful and then processing the distorted so it's healing and balance back to release or back to balance and then the other two of acquiring uh, wholesome qualities and maintaining or con you know cultivating and developing further wholesome qualities in mind and that's what we're doing here by this study is actually um, building into view into the our, our intellectual view, um, an enhanced vocabulary of virtue and admirable, uh, wholesome states, and uh, self-training by study and reflection. Uh, so we'll be um, less feverish and less prone to all sorts of harmful tendencies or be triggered to them, like deception and lying and then greed and possession. And um, <clears throat> this is um, a little bit of jnana yoga, actually, meaning uh, the path of yoga or mind-body-spirit transformation associated with study and use of mind, uh, refinement of view, and 
so it's very important actually so the end of all that is the mind entirely unbound or mind like fire unbound as as uh, Tanisaro wrote so this is a complete reformulation of, of the work of spiritual practice from a Buddha Dhamma perspective to the Brahman that uh, the spiritual path is not about rites and ritual performance that automatically bring heaven or uh, moksha or merit. Uh, there may be some merit, <laughs> there may be uh, some value, but actually the work, the, the fire is internal, the work is internal, and it begins, um, it begins with morality and virtue. Going on, a phrase here that I will explain a little bit later. He has abandoned the homes of the mind, has no possessions at all, no clinging here or beyond. Abandoning the homes of the mind is where the mind dwells, where we dwell internally in mental process. There's, again, the outer renunciation of family and home and possessions and this and that. But the greater renunciation is internal. Abandoning the homes of the mind, habits, uh, distorted core beliefs, uh, particularly about oneself. Uh, the sense that I must have this or I can't stand that. Uh, some of that upon deeper um, analysis or deeper uh, illumination is seen to be false. No, I can't accept it. Right? Like accepting the unacceptable. Abandoning the homes of the mind because they're found to be painful. <laughs> that living outside those homes is better than living within them. So this is um, the, the dukkha, <laughs> the, distort, the delusive and harmful homes of mind is associated, are associated with where we, how we normally think. Going round and round, right? Like arguments in our head or fighting some, some illusory, invisible enemy in mind that is an internalization of some outer person or institution, right? I hate the government, I hate the world, and so I argue with it internally, like that. Uh, but that's just one type. Envy and jealousy is certainly a common home in mind. Uh, Self-pity as well. Self-blame. There are lots of people who are heavy self-blamers and afraid to be without it. These are uh, homes, um, decrepit homes in mind that ought to be abandoned. Going on, centered, he, he says, centered, he's crossed over the flood, he knows the Dhamma, through the highest view, effluence ended, bearing his last body. And there's another verse about effluent. Effluent's a funny phrase, and I'll get into that in a moment whose effluent of becoming and harsh speech are destroyed, finished, do not exist. He, an attainer of knowledge, everywhere totally released. <clears throat> everywhere totally released. <laughs> uh, throughout all the world. The world is the physical and the metaphysical. The seven dimensions, the 31 planes, Triloka, uh, all of... Um, the dimensionalities of light or time and space. Uh, totally released everywhere throughout that. <laughs> There's no higher abiding for uh, a 
Tathagata. Now, this point on effluence, um, effluence ended bearing his last body. Let me just see something. Uh, the term for, uh, there was also the effluent of becoming and harsh speech destroyed. There's a difference between asava and klesha. There's a difference between craving and clinging. There's a difference between wrong views of self and eighth fetter conceit. Meaning, there's preliminary breaking of uh, fetters or uh, purification, and then deeper level purification. So, the second fetter, or one of the first three fetters that Suttapana breaks, breaking the ten fetters, Suttapana, the first stage of awakening, is um, mistaken views of self, or really attachment to any views of self. This is not the same as eighth fetter conceit, which is really this sort of very subtle stain of subjectivity, the stain of dualistic identity, uh, this very subtle sense that I'm not totality, <laughs> I'm me, not you, reasonable enough, however uh, illusory. And so in higher dimensions or in deep states of samadhi, um, that matter is seen differently. But there's a difference then between the earlier breaking of attachment to wrong view or attachment to any <laughs> illusory view of selfhood and then the breaking of any tendency towards that illusory selfhood uh, fashioning. Likewise, there's a difference between um, uh, asava and klesha. And so the term for effluent here, I believe, is, is asava the page Wikipedia from Asava. I knew a girl in Japan, her name was Asava, and she had many wart, many moles on her face, and I imagine many Asavas from her past lives. She was a very unhappy person. She was, you know, decent. She was good to me, and I was good to her. She was the one who said, uh, in Japan, you have to be Japanese. You have to do it in accord with the Japanese way. And I said, what if it's distorted and harmful to the people to be this Japanese way? She said, it doesn't matter. You have to do it. And so her name was Osawa. And not a bad person, but <clears throat> um, perhaps um, wounded a lot. Asavas can be translated here in different ways. Some people call them the, the, as far away, as far apart as influx or canker. We talked about this before, and I uh, translated loosely as distorted mental flow. Uh, influx, outflux, both. A canker or a sore because it's sort of oozing and uh, leads to more pain. Uh, a little bit more sophisticated translation as karmic predilections, karmic propensities, and Ajahn Suchito in a book called Kamma and the End of Kamma describes Asavas as underlying biases. I think that's brilliant, frankly. Underlying biases, this is a deeper level of mind that comes out as all sorts of um, distorted emotions and thoughts. Um, what, what is deeper comes out in differentiated ways. Um, in the same way as holding on to wrong views or mistaken views of self come out of the belief um, 
the belief in an illusory uh, selfhood or subjectivity. So, uh, asavas as underlying biases, these are karmic predilections prior to various states like envy, greed, jealousy, impatience, intolerance, self-hatred, self-loathing, criticalness, dot, 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 uh, self-pity, so on, so on. All of that differentiate, all those differentiated, triggered emotional, forms of emotional charge, manifestations of emotional charge, come out of something more deeply. Likewise, deep mind craving, tanha, leads to more conscious mind speech and activity associated with clinging. So craving is prior to clinging in the same way as asava is prior to um, uh, klesha. So there's the problem is not simply conscious. <laughs> the problem is subconscious too. And so the cause of the conscious or visible or manifest distortion is invisible, uh, pre-manifest, causal, deep mind distortion that takes much longer to work on. So craving leads to clinging in the various types of uh, clinging and attachment. Uh, deep mind belief in uh, separative, subjective, dualistic identity leads to all sorts of wrong beliefs about selfhood. Uh, likewise, karmic biases or predilections called asavas, which are three or four, um, lead to the differentiated, the, the, the multiplicity of differentiated expressions coming out as kleshas, which we'll look at in a moment. <laughs> all right? So this is uh, all heavy duty. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the fine man, says, a stock passage in the suttas indicates the terms real significance independently of etymology when it describes asavas as states that defile, bring renewal of existence, give trouble, ripen in suffering, and lead to future birth, aging, and death. Um, and he said, other translators, bypassing literal meaning, have rendered it cankers, corruptions, or taints. Uh, why? Uh, because actually they are of deep mind, distorted perspectives. And so, in the section called Number of Asavas, Asavas, I know, uh, mention three that sustain karmic flow and then lead to all sorts of manifest uh, distorted tendencies. The three mentioned in the Nikayas are, quote, karmic propensities for sensual pleasures, kamasava, karmic propensities for existence, bhavasava, and karmic propensities for ignorance, ajiva-sava, and then there's another that could be added called dita-sava, karmic propensities for viewpoint or perspective, right? <laughs> Wrong view or delusive view, distorted view, which is pretty much nearly all views. So these um, four forms of asavas are critical to consider as the root of kleshas. And so it's basically um, associated with um, uh, physical level, attached physical body level, interpersonal, social craving, clinging, sensual pleasures. And I would say sensual pleasures include um, relationship, actually. 
uh, karmic propensities or the biases for existence, which is really mental, I'd say, meaning uh, becoming as changed mental, emotional uh, states. And karmic propensities for ignorance, which is <laughs> basically uh, a vidya, a vidya at the top as the first, the tenth fetter or what's removed only at the end of the spiritual path in the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching. The propensities for ignorance is basically uh, coming out of restlessness and eighth fetter conceit, I'd say. And not a, a, a radical misunderstanding of um, identity and phenomena. Then the last is a distorted, you know, karmic propensities or biases uh, associated with view and wrong view. And then we have the kleshas, uh, mental states that cloud the mind and manifest unwholesome actions. I don't want to get into the whole long catalog of distortion, but uh, in the section Abhidhamma, ten defilements and unwholesome roots, and it's just new to me that what I had been calling the three poisons. Uh, anger, you know, greed, uh, greed, desire, um, grasping, aversion, ag anger, uh, irritability, uh, ant antagonistic ways, and then ignorance or uh, mental confusion, dullness, restlessness, all that, can also be called uh, three unwholesome roots in Theravadan. So Theravadan says three unwholesome roots. Mahayana called it three poisons. Uh, from this Wikipedia point here, there are ten kleshas enumerated. The first three are the roots, uh, greed, hate, delusion. But you can see that it, it's much more subtle than that. All, we have all sorts of forms of attachment and grasping that are not, they don't rise to the level of insane greed, like uh, salivating for something, but there's this strong attachment with the sense of, I must have it, including uh, interpersonally. Like, uh, in some cases, uh, I can't stand it if you, you know, you, you can't call me yellow. <laughs> if you call me yellow, like I think, uh, back to the future, don't call me chicken, don't call me yellow, I go insane and I have to fight you. This is um, actually uh, hate or uh, aggression coming out of greed or desire. Uh, I can't, there's a difference between I can't be in a relationship with somebody who puts me down to I can't live well if someone puts me down. Different. Meaning, it seems reasonable, it's like the difference between mm, desires and core needs in psychology. I can't be in a relationship with somebody who regularly blasts me and puts me down. But I don't, um, my sense of myself is not changed when I hear somebody put me down. Meaning I know who I am or what I am and um, you, your words don't, don't mean anything to me because I know better but I can't be in a relationship with a person who treats me that way. A little bit subtle. That could be called greed, but it's not, it's, it's a reasonable, <laughs> you know? It's reasonable, like Gautama and the Kagavisana. Uh, don't um, associate with those who are 
of your level or higher. If not, better to wander alone like the rhinoceros. Is that greed? Is that hate? Um, I guess it could be, but I don't think so. Not in its pure expression, in that uh, if we uh, stay with people of a certain level of distortion, we will become similarly distorted. And uh, it isn't valuable to be with those who wish to hurt us. On the other hand, the existence uh, of people who want to hurt us, or people who hate us or think we're bad or something, doesn't change my sense of self, or my awareness of what I, what I is, or my assessment of my strengths and weaknesses. So this is a very subtle point. So each one of these is formulated in a very in, in a kind of coarse way and could be refined. So the first three of these glaciers, greed, hate, delusion, same as grasping, aversion, ignorance. Then we have conceit, which here is number four, but the real conceit is eighth fetter, meaning it's not broken until nearly the end of the path. Then there's wrong views, right, which we, we saw as a form of uh, uh, karmic propensity and wrong views um, in the end, actually, uh, or essentially, are not finished until one is fully awakened. Doubt, this is uh, one of the early, one of the three fetters that's broken. Doubt is really, uh, particularly doubt in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And each one of these can be elaborated. I mean, one could do an hour or many hours on every single one of these. But certainly... Um, uh, they can all be resolved to some degree while the deeper roots have not yet been um, extirpated or removed or dissolved. We're talking about progress, successive approximation. Little by little by little, um, reducing, I mean, again, of the first two types of right samapadana, right exertion, let's say, the first two types, avoiding um, the unwholesome, and then uh, eliminating or abandoning the unwholesome after it's arisen in mind. Any of these could be called unwholesome. And uh, it's not unusual, it, it's uh, common <laughs> that uh, we, we may be triggered to any of these in some form, uh, coarse or subtle. Um, by daily life, by catalyst of <laughs> catalyst of uh, daily interaction, and we could know that uh, I'm not going to go there because I know I'll be triggered. I'm not going to do that because I know how I will become distorted. As well as uh, the thought starts and we check it and don't speak it uh, as another form of prevention or abandoning, right? So there's preventing the arising of and then abandoning the unwholesome that has already arisen, the first two types of right exertion, if you want to say that, rather than right effort, but either is fine, I think. So again, they can be coarse or subtle. They can be initially triggered and we recognize them and prior to speech or deed, we check ourselves and um, do some healing and balance or some meeting the moment in love and self-understanding and choose a more wholesome, 
better, more love-wisdom-based way of speaking and acting. So after doubt comes torpor, and then restlessness, shamelessness, and recklessness. Uh, a little bit similar to the Ten Armies of Mara, actually. So these, I'd say, uh, are manifestations of the deeper level uh, distortions called asavas, which are three or four, while the kleshas could be ten or many. There are many different lists of them. And uh, it's actually very deep, and you might want to look at the page because there's some very interesting additional points. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Mahayana uh, <clears throat> refined their uh, presentations. And so down the page, I mean, I've trained uh, in an, uh, all three yanas to some degree. Um, and I think, again, there's truth all over the place. <laughs> there's useful truth in Mahayana and Vajrayana and obviously in Theravada, and in Advaita Vedanta, and in Nityananda, and in uh, all sorts of presentations, Heraclitus and the early Gnostics and the uh, raw material, and some Alice Bailey, and Hilarion, and uh, dot, 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 Confucius. So Mahayana here, note, Mahayana literature often focuses on an enumeration of two obscurations, and it's a Sanskrit uh, a, a Tibetan word is put here. The obscuration of conflicting emotions and the obscuration concerning the knowable. <laughs> and so, these are two different levels of um, klesha. Uh, different way of categorizing the ten, and there are other lists that are not of ten or of eight. A different way of categorizing that whole, that whole body of distortion is associated with conflicting emotion and the knowable. And um, the linkage between distorted mental emotional process and view, or what a person knows, um, that is a very intimate connection. And so I'll, we'll look at that very far down the line. Back to the sutta, if everybody is still awake here. Well, almost time is up. Um, so the effluent of becoming and harsh speech are destroyed, don't exist, as he is an attainer of knowledge, actually. And so gnosis purifies, and purification or moral, moral purification uh, supports gnosis, knowing, seeing, and the more we know and see, the more natural um, purification, deep purification continues from, from gross to subtle or conscious mind to deep mind. Continuing in the sutta, he said, gone beyond snares for whom there are no snares, no traps, who among those attached to conceit is unattached to conceit, comprehending stress along with its field and its sight. And this term, note 11, from Samutta or Sutta Nipata Atakata, the field and site of stress or dukkha is a reference to defilements, which is kleshas. And so it could be a reference to the objects of clinging that can form a basis for such dukkha, such things as aggregates, meaning the five skandhas, sense media and properties, blah, 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 blah. 
So the field and site of dukkha um, is basically uh, the experience of an apparently outer world by an apparently separate agent <laughs> that uh, basically by the way we interplay, interact with this apparently external world and other, uh, generate stress and dukkha, right? Taking the impermanent as permanent, taking the insubstantial as substantial. And so the more one has penetration of the characteristics of the three marks and sees the nature of those three marks in all phenomena or mind process, um, the more detachment happens naturally and then uh, character is purified little by little and all sorts of desires and um, graspings that we felt we didn't even know we had or we consciously considered um, non-negotiable we may come to see oh wow I am stuck or wow I don't need that or uh, I can be okay while they're not okay but that doesn't mean I want to hang out with them <laughs> or uh, associate too deeply. And so, unattached to conceit among those attached to conceit. Uh, dwelling in harmlessness among the harmful. Uh, seeking to be free of distortion among those who are so distorted they don't even know they're distorted. Right? Uh, difficult. <laughs> this is a great training ground, by the way, of course, this world for the... Uh, seeking freedom from distortion amidst the unconsciously profoundly distorted. That doesn't mean they're bad. It means they're distorted. I think that's accurate. Then, uh, time check, okay, another 10 minutes or so. Independent, he, he goes on, Gautama, independent of desire, seeing seclusion, gone beyond the views known by others, who has no supports, no mental objects at all. And so, again, uh, watchwords on the way to freedom, such as uh, independent, independence and seclusion. There's a lot associated with standing alone. Gone beyond the views known by others, meaning false views, which most <laughs> views are. Uh, gone beyond and yet not bitter, not misanthropic. Um, like Nityananda said, the, the jackfruit on the outside, uh, somewhat harsh and forbidding the guru, meanwhile internally sweet and soft and, and beautiful. Uh, very possible. So independent of desire, free from being, free from... Um, being pushed around by your own mind, right? Uh, I made up my mind, uh, or is it that my mind made me up? Uh, who's the boss? <laughs> the one that uses mind, or the habits and tendencies of this mind? Uh, seeing seclusion, note 12, also a very interesting phrase. Seclusion means unbinding, <clears throat> according to commentary. Seclusion is um, a sort of radical, radical um, dissociation, <laughs> spiritual um, 
terminal terminal dissociation. <clears throat> Dissociated from a false association, not necessarily with people, which that may happen, but with wrong view and with clinging, you know, clinging, craving, craving, clinging, and uh, the three poisons or unwholesome roots. Uh, obviously, as you can see, <laughs> the, like, like Ra's statement, or which I couldn't find anywhere, again, uh, wisdom is a rather lonely matter. Uh, the spiritual path requires a whole lot of solitude. Yep. Uh, because that's where one may commune in, inwardly. And with others, one may be of service, or one may learn, or may, one may have fun, or have love, or not. Um, but that's not the heart of spiritual path. And that's just another point I won't get into much, but <clears throat> the, the Ra did a real disservice by calling the positive path the spirit, the path of service to other. Not only is it problematic because taking good care of yourself is called service to other. No, we could call it service to all. But actually calling spiritual path or seven chakra transformation as a path of service is a very uh, limited view if held too, too rigidly or tightly. If you hold the view that the path is service, even service to all, then what? Um, one is quite biased towards finding um, opportunities to be of service. Well, how about sitting alone in my room? Am I being of service? Of course, if I'm developing seven chakra by study or rest or self-care or meditation or learning in any way or whatever one finds truly valuable, that's called service to others or service to all. Well, why don't we just call it self-development? <laughs> you know, there is a real problem. I'm not sure whether it's their love of or wisdom bias from being Venusian or the intensity of their collectivity that have brought them from third into sixth density. But <clears throat> phrasing, term, terming the uh, seven chakra path, the path of seven chakra perfection, which is the spiritual path, which, yes, there is a left-hand path, uh, but terming the love-based, reality-based, 90% of the souls going out of third density-based spiritual path, the path of service to other, or even service to all, is um, a little bit problematic to me, I see now. Uh, it doesn't reject, I mean, spiritual path doesn't reject service, obviously. But it's not based on it. And it maintains duality, uh, if you hadn't noticed, because <clears throat> there's the duality of self and other in their initial formulation. There's the duality of other and all. <laughs> Meanwhile, or service to self and all. Meanwhile, service to all includes service to self, but service to self is negative, but taking good care of myself is positive, but it's called service to other, but it's really service to all. It's silly. How about spiritual path? And uh, that includes service, which is in the triad study meditation service. So study and internal inner development one does alone, or in groups, I guess. And meditation, which is generally alone, or even if in group, it's an inner work. And then service. Uh, but to, to label the entirety of the seven chakra transformation work as service to other or service to all or service even that 
um, leads some people to um, uh, establishing distortions in view. And I think that's useful to, to contemplate. So independent of desire, seeing seclusion, uh, seeing unbinding, seeing freedom in which um, one has gone beyond relationality gone beyond the views known by others and has no mental no supports no mental objects at all the tathagata deserves a sacrificial cake this term uh, mental objects or supports is aramana the page <laughs> i sent a link on and this is probably close to where we'll end from the book abhidhamma in daily life by asin Janaka Bivamsa, Ashin Janaka Bivamsa. Uh, it's from uh, another book or related to another book called Manual of Abhidhamma by Narada uh, Tara, very famous um, scholar, bhikkhu, and uh, has a small portion, a small write up of the five. Um, Aramanas, and these are five or then six mental supports, and it's not that complicated. It's very similar to this notion of the homes of mind. It's written here, or in the middle. The Pali word Aramana means the haunt of consciousness. Every consciousness, now this is actually ignorance-based consciousness, dualistic consciousness, um, non-awakened awareness. Every consciousness arises only in association with a sense object. And so you've got the five sense doors and objects, right? touch, taste, sight, uh, smell, sight, hearing. So these haunts of consciousness are five, uh, visual, sound, visual, which is matter, sound, smell, taste, touch, okay, fine. These are the haunts or habits of chittas or consciousness. Uh, fine, that's mind-body living in 3D space-time. The sixth is dhamma-ramana. Dhamma-ramana. Consists not only of rupa, meaning the five uh, sense uh, object fields, the, sense, the five fields of sense objects associated with the five senses, but also chitta consciousness, siyasika, uh, nibbana, and all panati, conventional elements, so everything is dhamma. So that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness also, and mindfulness of dhammas, which is like everything, physical and uh, inner as well, consciousness, mind, process, all these. The point is, um, this is just the five, uh, five uh, doors of perception, right? The third skanda. So the point is that the mind um, gets stuck in in the elab in elaborations we make on our perceptions, and then we get stuck on our getting stuck. We make com um, complicated stories uh, from what we're experiencing in the material world and interpersonally, and then by memory and imagination and thought. And all of that um, is the tangle of mind. And all of that is, um, need, needs a, a purification in some, some sense. 
we make too much of what we don't need to make so much of. We uh, get stuck because we have, <laughs> we're spun by the worldly winds, right? Pleasure and pain, gain and loss of any type, honor or, or praise and blame, and then honor, dishonor. Uh, if, if, you know, the, the spiritual path is a purification, the development of my, of my body spirit is a purification of my body spirit. Eating uh, vegetarian or veganism is the most shallow level of purification of uh, mind, body, spirit. Fine. If it helps you, it's good. But it isn't critical. It isn't necessary. Some people think, you know, Yeshua said, it's not what a man puts in his mouth that causes sin, but what comes out. And Gautama ate meat. Okay. He didn't like eat meat all day long. It was just to nourish the body and move along to what's more important. And that's a detachment. But uh, the path of seven chakra perfection is a purif includes a purification of mind-body-spirit. And the purification of mind-body-spirit particularly is focused on mind. And the work of that purification of mind, which is very much like clearing lower triad blockages with love wisdom and you know developing four, five, six to clear one, two, three, um, that mind purification uh, is learned by study, learned in study and meditation and reflection and practiced in speech and action. And so there's thought, word, and deed. By study and dialogue, uh, we have learning that also um, supports meditation or we have study, learning, and meditation that develops mind view and understanding. Then we practice it interpersonally or in the world and, and with ourselves, of course, particularly by speech and deed. And that purification uh, is the great work. And a portion of that is uh, being free of um, supports and internal uh, dwellings in thought and belief that are distorted and unhelpful, unwholesome. This is very, very important. And so that's um, the subtlety, you know, of, of mind purification. And certainly there's a psycho psychological aspect to it, which is healing old pain. Because ultimately, uh, bad behavior comes out of unhealed pain. Uh, unhealed wounding and old imprinted pain is commonly the basis for unwholesome activity in thought, word, and deed. Activity of thought and word and deed coming out of old pain. Like the, uh, the, the animal with a, a thorn in, in his leg. Uh, he's ill-tempered because he's in pain. Uh, likewise, the uh, hungry, greedy, salivating type who wants more and more and more uh, is also in pain. <laughs> uh, and uh, grief comes out, is, is a form of pain coming from having lost what we wanted and wanting what we want or having a whole listing of what we want also comes out of pain, actually. And when that pain is increasingly healed, 
by study, meditation, and service, uh, by inner work and interpersonal relations, um, we're less likely to be out of love wisdom. We're more likely to be in love wisdom and good behavior or wholesome tendencies outside the kleshas um, when we're in less pain. When we've brought greater love, wisdom, accept yourself, understand, understand yourself, accept yourself, to ourselves. When we brought love, care, acceptance, understanding, discernment, clarity to our own deep mind uh, in the way of healing, old wounding, and imprinted pain. Uh, all sorts of um, purification in thought, word, and speech comes from that. And um, the end of the path is then a freedom from any clinging to false identity or subjectivity. So, that's it for today. <laughs> We're taking it slow, and I hope you like it. It's beautiful sutta, and um, very deep teaching here, I think. Uh, next time we'll start with the verse beginning, In whom, having understood them, phenomena from high to low are destroyed, finished, do not exist, meaning phenomena are destroyed. How do you destroy phenomena? And we'll look into this note 14, unbinding, meaning nirvana, the end of the path, as the end of phenomena. Oh my God, the Buddha killed phenomena. That's scary. So that's strange. The idea is that um, I think, and we'll look into next time, like Gautama said, even Vijnana, or consciousness, Fitzkanda, is born of ignorance. I like my eyes. The experience and appearance of phenomena is also born of ignorance. Tenth fetter, Avidya. When ignorance is gone, consciousness is gone, phenomena is gone. Mm. What is that? What, <laughs> what's that then? I don't know. Um, ask Nityananda, he knows. So, in any case, <laughs> we'll look at that. And um, the word transphenomenal. And then <laughs> there was a very uh, serious <laughs> um, discussion um, in one of the further notes uh, discussion that we'll get to in a few weeks, I guess, uh, with this term called consciousness without surface. Some of the more subtle Buddhist terminology describing uh, high states and um, aspects of unbinding uh, are very, <laughs> very interesting metaphysically. So consciousness without surface associated with the destruction of phenomena and um, the end of the path. Mm. Uh, freedom from consciousness and phenomena as well. So, I hope that was interesting to you. Um, next time we'll pick it up around note 14 and uh, continue on. It'll take a few more weeks. So, please take good care of yourselves. Thank you to everyone here, and good night.